Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome back to Episode 66 of That's So Second Millennium. This is the continuation of our interview with Maureen Kondik. We start with a fairly technical but very intriguing discussion of stem cells, the different kinds of stem cells, different words, including one that Maureen has felt the need to coin herself in order to clear up certain confusions about the nature of different kinds of stem cells. We talk about early embryology, some fascinating stuff that uh, I managed never to hear in high school biology. I don't know about the rest of you all. And then Bill asks a very intriguing question. How can this wonderful entity that we've been discussing, the early embryo, the blastocyst for that matter, um, which in some sense might really be a, quote, clump of cells, but boy, it's a fascinating and beautiful, in the sense of what it can do, clump of cells. How can you, how Bill asks how this entity can be dismissed as a clump of cells, and that allows us to transition to an interesting discussion about the motivations of scientists, especially biological scientists, and the problem Marine sees in her field of people who desire to, you might say, make the fly. I made that fly. I, you know, changed its genetics. I made that fly. And the fascinating and disturbing sense in which they almost might see God as a competitor in the art of creation rather than rejoicing in the creation that allows them to do this tinkering and experimentation and exploration. And then we conclude with a discussion of the difficulty that she had actually writing a book with her brother in terms of simply the language barrier that exists between scientists today and philosophers because of, and we went uh, all the way back, if, if uh, if you were to go back to our first few episodes, we talked about the divorce between science and philosophy, and Maureen bears witness to that in her own field, and the importance, and this, this book that I really want to pick up that she wrote with her brother, we'll link it in the liner notes, um, that spends a considerable amount of time, and she thinks the best part of the book, simply bridging this terminological gap, this terminological and conceptual gap. So this is a fascinating episode, and uh, we will have one more. This is going to be followed up by a third and final episode. Uh, next week, and then we will move on to uh, interviews of the other speakers at the conference. So without further ado, here is Marine Gondik. We, we've talked about these terms, and of I was uh, you know, doing a little bit of reading, not as much as I would like to, um, of some of your work before uh, putting this together. So so we've, we've used the word, I believe, pluripotent already, and you, and you have used the words totipotent and plenipotent in print as well. What If we could break down what the definition of just those three terms are, they're sort of... Yeah, I, I did coin a new term, which I, I did with great trepidation, but I did it precisely to try to get around uh, an incredible misunderstanding in the public and a misuse of terminology by by the scientific literature. Yeah. So, totipotent is uh, a term that means having all powers, yeah. able to do everything. Yeah. And... Um, the scientific literature uses that term in two distinct ways. Mm-hmm. The first one is uh, the ability to make literally all of the cell types that, that come from that one cell embryo. So this would include mm-hmm. all of the cells of the embryonic organs of the placenta and 
embryonic mm-hmm. membranes as well as all of the tissues and sometimes the system in the mature body. So if you can do that, you are totipotent. You have you are the kind of cell that has the ability to make everything. So the zygote is totipotent. The zygote is the gold well, standard. Well, the zygote is totipotent, but so are many stem cells in this limited sense, in the ability to make all of the cell types of the body. Mm-hmm. So in mouse, for example, stem cells taken from embryos are pretty much restricted to making just the cells of the mature body. So they don't make the cells of the placenta, for example. Right. But human embryonic stem cells actually have the capability of making everything. So they're totally potent in that simple sense, the ability to produce all of the cell types that that are normal human cell types. The stricture sense of totally potent is um, the term as it would apply to a one-celled embryo. So a cell that has not only the ability to Make all of the cell types of the body, but in fact, it's going to, yeah, and yeah, in in a coherent, rational sequence that allows for not can't say rational, but in a a coherent sequence that allows Mm -hmm. for the ordered production of of increasingly mature states of human development. So, if you have that kind of totipotency, so if I take stem cells, for example, and I aggregate them all together, they can and do produce all the cells of the body in a chaotic mass like a tumor. Yeah. But an embryo will produce all of the cells of the body yeah. in an ordered developmental sequence mm-hmm. that that progressively moves towards more mature states of, of, of the human form. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of telepotency is the kind of telepotency that really is all powerful. Yeah. Can do everything. Yeah. 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 Um, but in contrast, refers to cells like the, I just described the mouse embryonic stem cells. So cells that have the capability of producing all of the cell types found in the mature body, but not all of the cell types found okay. um, in, in human development, so the cells of the placenta and embryonic structures that are transient. So pluripotent is able to make all the cells of the body. Totipotent, in the strict sense, is, is to be an embryo, is to make all the to cells of the body entire, and yeah. also organize them yeah. in, a, in a coherent body plan. And we needed something to replace that simpler sense of totipotent. Yeah. Which, which uh, is confusing when people use it because people will read yeah. that and say, oh, they've made embryos. And what they've really done is made a tumor that has this yeah. broader development capability of producing all of the cells that, yeah. that are possible to be produced. Yeah. So that would be funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm. That is yeah, a, whole, a whole world of, you know, when I early on decided to go up the opposite direction of biology and said, oh, yeah. I'm leaving that behind, aren't I? <laughs> so, and that does bring up the question, which I, which I believe you've addressed at length in different uh, uh, places. At what point does a, because of course there's the phenomenon of twinning, of identical yes. twinning. At what point does the zygote, at how many divisions down does a human, as opposed to a mouse or a turtle or a chick or whatever, um, you know, how many divisions down does it lose the ability to be fully totipotent in that sense? Oh, this is a really, really important question. In fact, I have a book in press at the University of Maine Press on untangling twinning <laughs> that, that addresses um, the, both the philosophical and the biological issues mm-hmm. associated with twinning uh, in, in great detail. So, yeah. the the short answer to your question is: proving a cell is totipotent, it takes a very strict scientific test. You need to isolate that cell yeah. from all other contributing sources of information, mm-hmm. and then you assess what its capabilities are uh, independent of, of any other cell type within the embryo. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the hard thing about that experiment is that cells don't like to be isolated. And it's very no. hard to do it in a manner that, that you don't get the negative finding of the cell dies, or it doesn't do anything, it just sits there. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, you don't really know what it's going to do. Because the only way you can assess it is if you get a positive finding. Right, right. So with that as a caveat to to looking at um, the strict question of totipotency, the ability to not only produce but to organize all of the cell types in the body, there appear to be species-specific differences mm-hmm. in how long that capability is preserved. So uh, in mice... Um, I think the weight of the data is that the first two cells produced from the zygote, mm-hmm. if separated, can't go on to produce independent little twin mice. Mm-hmm. But after that, you lose the ability mm-hmm. to do that. In some species, for example, cattle, for some reason, seem to preserve totipotency up to, say, the four cell stage. Okay. Uh, pretty routinely. So people clone cattle fairly, fairly frequently by blastomer separation, by separation of the early first four cells of the embryo. Okay. And each of them can routinely go on to make a little baby cow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, progress to the calf stage. stage right. <laughs> um, there's one unreplicated report in, in a particular species of pigs that asserted, that I would just call this an assertion because it's right. never been shown by anyone else, that in that species you can preserve totipotency up to the eight cell stage. So okay. each of the first eight cells, if separated, could could potentially produce an embryo. Okay. But I think in the vast majority of mammals, the two cell stage is about as far as you can go. Okay. I think cattle are really the exception. I think this one reported pigs is probably Spurious. not correct. Yeah. Um, it happens sometimes. It does happen. Or it was an almost finding that nobody's been able to replicate right. since then. Right. Um, yeah. so, so, but that's not the only way that twinning can happen. Mm-hmm. Then there's fraternal twinning. There's fraternal twinning where you have two independent embryos and they just so happen to coexist in yes. the uterus at the they same time. They have to time. be mates. But, yes. mates. <laughs> but, but there's also, um, it's, it's, uh, you can, the, the capacity to develop as an entire embryo, as a whole, as a whole, unified whole, um, can exist in a multicellular embryo. Um, as a whole, no one cell, if you took it out, could, mm-hmm. could restart the whole process of development all over again. Right. But the entity as a whole has mm-hmm. that capacity. So, um, and there's very good experimental evidence and some some evidence from fertility clinic work that that splitting an embryo much much later, an embryo that contains hundreds of cells, mm-hmm. uh, will cause each of the halves to uh, heal and go on mm-hmm. in development to make to make twins, identical twins. Yeah. So that kind of splitting, uh, that isn't separation of the earliest cells, but an actual division of the embryo in half, uh, yeah. that can occur up to about 14 days of human development. Okay. So we have some evidence that happens naturally as well as, mm-hmm. or at least we have no reason to believe it doesn't happen both at well, the two-cell stage we as have well as... good reason to believe that it never happens at the two-cell stage, although okay. experimentally we can do this. Okay. Um, but all human mammal in the wild identical in the twins. Wild, <laughs> identical twins. I'm going to argue. I argue in the book I, uh-huh. um, that I think the vast majority, if not all, mm-hmm. um, identical twinning in humans in the wild, so to speak, in uh-huh. natural situations, occurs at uh, at the blastocyst stage, which is uh, a stage where you have many hundreds of cells in the embryo. Yeah. It 
looks kind of like a hollow ball. Yeah, uh, because it has both the uh, the wall of the placenta that's forming as well as the... As the inner cells that are going to go on to produce the postnatal body. Yeah. So all of that early development happens inside a, a protein coat known as the zona pellucida. It's a very rubbery, tough coat that protects okay. the embryo and the egg. The egg when ovulated, and then the early embryo as it's traveling down through the fourteen tubes to the uterus. But in order for it to implant, um, you have to escape from this rubbery coat because okay. the outer cells. And that rubbery coat is also generated by the embryo. The rubbery coat is actually generated by the egg as it's yeah. developing. So it's a structure okay. surrounding the egg. Oh, is that different from the corpus luteum? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, there's so many things. So All many this things. Yeah. Yeah. No, so the corpus luteum is a, is a structure within the ovary. The ovary, yeah. Part of um, the, the organization surrounding the maturing egg called the follicle. Right. And right. so the cells of the follicle that remain in the ovary after ovulation are the corpus luteum. But the pellucida yeah. is this proteinaceous coat. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very simple. It consists of three proteins. Created, we call it Zonopalusa 1, Zonopalusa 2, and Zonopalusa 3. <laughs> but they make, yeah. they make a nice, uh, yeah. tough, protective coat for the egg. The sperm actually have to penetrate through the zona in order to get to the surface of the egg to um, have fertilization happen. Um, and then all of early development happens within the zona. Um, but yeah. in order for the embryo to implant, the outer cells um, actually of the, of the embryo actually mediate implantation. And they have to escape from this covering, mm-hmm. or they can't interact with the uterus. Yeah. So this happens through a process called hatching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it actually, I have some great movies of this. It's just unbelievable. It really does look like the the embryo secretes some enzymes that help uh, weaken the zone A1 region. It's usually a small tear, and then this entire structure squeezes out of the mm. little eggshell. Yeah. Um, and People have observed twinning happening at that exact point. That would be a point where you would expect that to happen. Two little bubbles instead of one little bubble. And so long as each of them inherits some of the cells in the intersolve, you get identical twins. But are there times when it's it divides in a less fortunate manner and then you simply unfortunately visit? One that just has some cells missing, that they're not sufficiently large enough group of cells for them to carry on the development on their own originally. That gets complicated really fast. Which, but I think yeah. part of the confusion about twinning is, is the belief that twinning happens at the T-cell stage. And yeah. we can do this in the laboratory. People do it routinely. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it has never actually been observed. Okay. Um, yeah. in, in, despite the mm-hmm. fact that in IVF situations, we have daily observations of embryos. Many, many Hundreds yeah. of thousands of embryos have been lost over many, many years, yeah. and no one has ever reported this happening. Nobody has seen that happen. Okay. Even though the actual rate of twinning in IVF situations is highly elevated compared to natural. It, it's natural what? Twinning. It's higher? It's quite, quite a bit higher. Quite a bit higher, yeah. yeah. So, so in that situation, which no one should be exposed to, but that's the world we live in. <laughs> um, so that, that whole... And I forget the name of, of it already, but the, that protein coat is present yeah. as well, yes. and that's growing in the dish or what yes. have you. And yeah, so that that has to swell, and then at some point that gets implanted, and this whole tearing process could also happen. I mean, there would yes. there would be a more or less normal rate of that style of twinning. Well, I mean, that would be no. You're saying it's higher, yeah, and that's when, and that's when it would happen. Yeah, and, and some of the thinking about this from animal models is that the longer uh, period of time you have the embryos in culture, the, the tougher that 
protein code gets. Yeah. And so the likelihood that, that you're going to have a really constricted aperture through which the polymer yeah. has to escape yeah. would, would potentially increase the likelihood yeah. of training. Yeah. The adventures that we all have to go through without, you know, before we have any chance to remember any of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's fascinating. I've often, yeah. I've often been asked how, uh, you know, my experience as a scientist was, uh, you know, has it given me a better appreciation for, for humans and for human life. And, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, uh, it wasn't until I was pregnant and I really started thinking about yeah. what I knew about embryology in a practical yeah. sense and in right. a personal sense yes. that, that I became completely flabbergasted that anybody ever survives to maturity. Right? Wow. <laughs> right? Just, how can this ever work? How does this, it's all got to go just right. Exactly. And there's so many variables and they're all having to happen exactly at the same That's time in exactly the same way. And yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 It really is. It, it does, it does give you a sense of awe. Yeah, and without the, question. And the miraculous nature of, of, yeah. of human development that, that yeah. we ever get out here more or less intact with high fingers and fat toes. Right, yeah. And given that whole realm of awe and wonderment and amazing mm-hmm. unlimited potential for different things to happen at that stage of life, I have to just think as a, as a, a Catholic layperson that, you know, in the Catholic imagination, it seems so viscerally sad and disturbing that this wonderland, in a sense, um, is so easily dismissed as a comp of cells. Yeah. No, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking the side of we invade it and manipulate it to our own ends so readily, but yeah, that, yeah. that side of it too, yeah. But, yeah, yeah both, of them are, both of them are disturbing and also I find I find uh, that attitude among my colleagues um, I don't want to say disingenuous because I honestly think they don't think about it but, but it is it is a distortion of reality and of, of a reality that, that they should know better yeah. and it, uh, you spoke early on about that uh, what, what compelled you early on was the big picture question mm-hmm. and what you're what you've been dis- discussing is a lot of big, big picture, big possibility kinds of questions. And presumably, you're not alone among these biologists. They, too, were drawn in by big questions, big picture at some point in their early lives. And yet, it falls by the wayside, and it's it, that, too, is just really sad, <laughs> it seems to be. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever done a sort of sociology study of, of what draws people to science, because... I'm not sure I would endorse the concept that most scientists are drawn to it by big picture questions. Really? At least not in biology. Well, mm-hmm. I think in biology, the vast majority of people who are drawn to to it are people who, you know, took their mother's toaster apart when they were eight years old and mm-hmm. <laughs> confident that they could put it back together, I except see. for that last spring, spring or something. Just, yeah, yeah, it didn't quite fit. Or the, or the yeah. thing that they crossed it and shorted it and uh, yeah. sort of got the, <laughs> yeah, got the pop tart like on fire. That toaster experience in your past. Um. <laughs> It wasn't a toaster per se, but yeah, uh, yeah, some things of that nature. Yeah. Okay, yeah. well, so I think I think biologists in particular are not are not people who spend a lot of time contemplating the big pictures. They're not like cosmologists or physicists or right. maybe geologists who have this huge. The, you, there there are different time. branches. Yeah, I mean, the people who go into oil and gas are you know they have an end and a means to that end, mm-hmm. as opposed to the people who study the history of the planet as a whole. Yeah. You know, or planets now, multiple planets as a whole. You yeah. know, that's that is those are yeah, fairly big picture questions. Yes, I think I think that in in 
my experience with biology across across many different um, organisms and different orientations on more or less pertaining to medicine or to basic science, the really unifying thing is is the tinkering mentality. I want to be able to take things apart. I want to put them back together in cool ways. Mm. I just want to see if I can do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I can take that toaster apart and put it yeah. back together. And I'll just, again, I love to tell stories. This, this is how I order my mind, I think. We're doing a <laughs> podcast, so this is exactly when you should exercise that. Uh, yeah, that's excellent. So I had, a, I had a, a postdoctoral advisor who was a fabulous fly geneticist um, at Berkeley. Uh, you know, really just the kind of mind that you could just stand in awe of. He, he would lecture, you know, pose some biological question. Mm-hmm. Have you ever wondered how gene X interacts with gene Y? Mm-hmm. You know, how would you test that? Right. And, and then he would just, off the top of his head, describe these incredibly complicated genetic processes. Everybody's frantically taking notes, and I'd go home mm-hmm. and, like, you know, an hour later work out, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. I guess that Unpack. actually would yeah. do what he said it would do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he was so experienced. The so, logic of... So, yeah. so logical. He could just do these things off the top of his head. But... Um, and amazingly, uh, as many scientists are, that uh, confident individual. <laughs> and I remember yeah, yeah. more than once, yeah, after going through one of these very, very complicated um, genetic processes to test a particular idea, he would pause dramatically with <laughs> his hand on his hip uh-huh. and his other hand on his chin and, yeah. and say quite smugly, so I made that fly. <laughs> I yeah. made that fly. And yeah. the fascinating thing is that that yeah. attitude. No, I didn't test the hypothesis. No, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't discover the information. No, I had an idea in my head, mm. and I manifested it in yeah. reality. Yeah, I made yeah. the fly. Right. <laughs> yeah. That that attitude. The attitude, It's tinkering writ large. It's the ability yeah. to have an idea yeah. and to make it happen. Not yes. to discover what's in nature, but to make the fly yourself. Yes, it's not yeah. discovery. It's, yeah. it's a great a creatorship. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, would it be hyperbolic to call it a kind of God complex? Because <laughs> it sure sounds like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole... Well, but you know, that that kind of power, that that... It's so intoxicating. Yeah. I mean, people who love who yeah. love the experimental side of science, who you know, biologists I know, myself included, you know, would wake up in the middle of the night and look at the clock and go, okay, the experiment's been running for three, you know, four and a half hours. If I ran into the lab right now, it would be gone enough so I could tell if it worked or not. And yeah. They would get up, get on their bicycles, drive to the lab at yeah. <laughs> three in the morning because, yeah. Yeah. because yeah. when it works... It's such uh, an incredibly powerful yeah. Oh, yeah. thing of, you know, you you had an idea and you made that fly. You made it happen. In reality, it isn't, and it almost is completely stripped of any sense of discovery. There's there's almost no wonderment about it. It was that you were clever enough to make it happen. Hmm. It's sad to lose that sense of wonder. Yeah. Really? Well, it's, but, it's yeah. sad and sort of contrary to the scientific enterprise. Yeah. 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 We consult reality and see what it has to say. Well, I mean, that's, and, that's, and of course, there's the whole, you know, there's both a philosophic and a spiritual side of you were able to make this fly because 
there were already flies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Everything from the fact that there are things rather than nothing all the way down through the existence of laws of physics that allows complex phenomena like this to happen to the construction of a genome where there's already all of these pieces in place and you took some bricks out and slid them in different places and something cool happened. And that's great. But <laughs> yep. this is, yep. it is, and I, uh, one of the reasons I tell the story is because of the obvious absurdity of that claim. Yeah, you know, yeah. I would often push back and oh, so you know, what chemicals did you start with? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. When you made the fly, yeah, I would, I would look to do that myself sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'd make a really big one so I could like fly to work out. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go down. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna buy some coal and I'm gonna purify it and I'm gonna get the carbon and hydrogen out of it and I'm gonna make a fly. That's Let's start talking. from there. Right. Yeah. right. And and it's odd because again they're so poor. There's such a there's so such a complete lack of any kind of philosophical training for the vast majority of scientists. They just yeah. don't talk these things. Yeah. But but it struck me in, in your litany of everything from the Big Bang all the way up through to the existence of the genome. Yeah. I would say right before that, you still have to have the existence of the soul. You have to have no. you have to have a substantial form for any living thing yeah. that is kind of the gravitational forces towards which all of those biological processes are working. Um, and that hold them together as a coherent thing. So that when you take out a few genes, you know, sometimes you kill the fly, but you rarely cause it to break down into carbon. Yeah. 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 It hasn't, hasn't gone all the way back that far. Yeah. That is, fa- I mean, that's fascinating to me. And I don't know enough Aristotelian Thomistic philosophy to do this yet. Maybe I'll be crazy enough to, you know, go off in that direction. Um, but, you know, old Aristotle and his form and matter idea. Yeah. It actually, it seems to me there are a lot of ways it works better with modern science than it did when you were trying to say, well, it's a table. What's the form of a table? Well, you know, it's kind of <laughs> has to be sort of like this. Whereas what's the form of an electron? Yeah. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty precise. Yeah. What's the form of a Drosophila melanogaster? Well, you know, there's, there's, I mean, the, the, the DNA, the genome is, is, is a fairly precise set of rules. I mean, it's not that hard, but I mean, then that would be only part of the yeah. form. Well, it's, but, a, it's a it's a very these are so so prior to this book that's coming out on twenty, I wrote a book with my brother Samuel, um, okay. who is um, a philosopher, mm-hmm. and uh, to my knowledge, this is one of the few books that has really attempted to, to bring to bear onto the question of anything in our yeah. case, the embryo, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a rigorous philosophical analysis and a rigorous biological analysis, mm-hmm. and. Um, the interesting backstory to this book was that the hardest part of writing it were, were the three or four years where we just had to fight endlessly over terminology. Like, what yeah. do you even mean when you say this? Right? Yeah. You know? And, and that's one not- of the most generous things you can do is to put the result of that argument out there for other people not to have, to well, we were, have the we whole were argument. We convicted that we were talking about the same world. And if you're yeah. talking about the same world, you have to develop a common vocabulary that allows yeah. you to talk about it intelligently yeah. and a common shared set of, of uh, understandings. Yeah. Uh, but as a result, when when we had finally worked through mostly an education on my part, you know, learning biology is relatively simple, but wrapping your head around <laughs> hylomorphism is... Said the, said the, said the biologist. It's yeah. a, oh, it's yeah, a yeah. much more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that the what? amount of information you have to acquire to wrap your head around biology is is, is enormous, but, but yeah. the complexity of the ideas is they're all fairly trivial. Yeah. Overall, a very, a very large number of relatively small inferences to get right. to where you're going. To get to yeah. whereas, whereas trying to understand what is what is the form of of a Drosophila yeah. is is a much much harder thing to do. But uh, we, I would say, the second biggest fight was once we had gotten to the point where I I could barely hold on to all of this and think about it intelligently. Um, I'd insisted, well, we have to have a chapter in the book that addresses this. Yeah. From the perspective of four people like me, people yeah. who never really thought about it this way before. Yeah. And my brother, to my brother, that was just beyond. Everybody knows this. Of course, it's obvious. <laughs> Why do we need to talk about what hylomorphism is? <laughs> the dangers of specialization, <laughs> so, yes. yes. So, so the first chapter in that book is, I think, a great... Um, it was it it's reflects um, me, the ignorant scientist, trying to... This is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, endorsed by somebody who has a much more natural sense of, of the relationships between the various components and mm-hmm. and it it writing that chapter really convinced me that intrinsically all scientists actually are Aristotle. Mm-hmm. You know, they they look at it that way. Mm-hmm. They're they're Thomists, you know, they have this understanding. Mm-hmm. We just don't know they have it because you right. can't really do science without an understanding yeah. of of uh, the the fact that the subject of your experiment can change and remain the same thing that it was, yeah. despite change. Yeah. Because if we didn't have that, we would never be able to do an experiment. We'd never even be able to interpret our results because every every instant, every every incidence would be its own independent thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. What is the title of that book? That book is called um, Human Embryo, Human Being, uh, a Scientific and Philosophic Analysis. Uh, Is that uh, important that uh, very few books like that have been written that attempt to synthesize uh, the philosophical and philosophical? I think think a lot of people try to do it, but they do it very poorly because they don't go through that three-year process of really (laughs) working to try to understand that. Or work with another person of of sufficient competency that... So you yeah. have a lot of philosophers who dabble in biology and, and yeah. come up right. with some grand yeah. unifying theory that is completely doesn't you know, doesn't really contact the truth yeah. on the ground. Well, it yes, it's <laughs> completely uncoupled from the facts. Yeah, easy to do. you know, maybe yeah. are forty years out of date and, and overly simplified. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you have a lot of scientists who you know get all get tired of writing grants and suddenly imagine themselves to be philosophers. Hey, I wrote Contours. <laughs> right, right. Picked up, I picked up a few modern, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been from Russell or right. someone. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, what I'm confident, and now yeah. I'm going to speculate away about, yeah. you know, the meaning of the universe because you yeah. know I'm old and crotchety and I know right. I'm smarter than most everybody else I know, and so I, yeah. I should be allowed to do that. But of course, they do it very, very naively and, and yeah. completely uncoupled from any kind of philosophical rigor, or yeah. Yeah. because it's hard. Yeah, you know, it's hard. I, I certainly couldn't have done this on my own. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, we had a collaboration, a true collaboration, and it was, it was, I think, very, a very, uh, certainly for me, a very productive one, and, and I hope uh, a useful one for everybody else. Yeah, yeah. interesting. That yeah. Is, that's, yeah. I mean, and and to take that and to, yeah, I mean, that is the thing. Is yeah, there is so like you said, there is so much philosophy out there that sort of. Attempts to, and it's sort of glibly, you know. I, of course, from my own specialty, I can look at things. You know, you know are, are you really defining that? You know, from the perspective of geology and chemistry, 
that's not necessarily an adequate treatment of that. <laughs> um, yes. um, and that's, yeah. And then of course, the, you know, completely the other side of, you know, the scientists who even bother to convince themselves they need to write something about it. have yeah. Gotten on that, that opinion of themselves. Um, and that, that, that seems, but that seems to me completely, I mean, that would, that would be what's required to build that bridge to, you know, it, it was what we would have to do now to, capitalize on the philosophy and the science that we have the way that it was, you know, and you can't replicate it and it would be much more complicated. Thousands of people instead of the several dozen that probably gave us the medieval synthesis in the 13th century. Um, but, but what work could be, I mean, to me, you know, even, even if you are, you know, if you, even if you're just laboring away trying to, okay, how, how am I going to apply this to, the question of what is a tectonic plate <laughs> or, or crystals or minerals. What, you know, why, what, what, which, what should we define as a mineral species? Where should we draw those lines? Should we have all these names? Maybe even, even just that, but that would still be, I mean, so I use this example, you know, from earth science. If you've seen three tin mines in Cornwall, you think, you know, how tin mine, you know, you think, you know, how tin deposits work. And then you might go to Spain and you're like, oh, you know, as it turns out, cassiterite can crystallize in this completely different environment. Huh, that's interesting. I better, I better do some more work and see if there's a common. And then you go to Indonesia. And by the time you've got 30 tin mines, you might not be as surprised when you go and see tin mine number 31. Say, oh, okay, this actually is at least like existing patterns. And that I, I don't know that we've, I mean, there, there's a need to go deep and there's a need to go broad. There's also kind of a need to be at that 45 angle and degree angle in between. And I think that's really where there's stuff lacking in terms of, mm. I, I think the philosophical ideas would get a lot more rigorous if we expose them to enough different environments and demanded an actual, like what would work with the facts on the ground and this science and this science and this science. And you would start to see patterns of things that I think we're missing. I see. It's an idea. Uh, and I think we, we have this, Throughout the scientific enterprise, as um, someone mentioned earlier, the, the need to the demands of science to falsify your own hypothesis yeah. is is a really, really tough thing to wrap your head around. And in practical fact, people tend to shy away from mm-hmm. from looking at evidence that could that could disqualify their hypothesis. Yeah, and and that even applies to things uh, that they've never really formulated that good hypothesis on. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows. Right, and, and so let's not actually look into the literature and find out if that's true or not, yeah. because I'm comfortable with everybody knows, because yeah. it supports you know whatever vision of the world I want to have and yeah. allows me to to just assume that there's no alternative explanation. Yeah. That's so. Second millennium is brought to you by me, Paul Geesting, and by Bill Schmidt. Find more of Bill's work at onward w o r d dot net. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can email a link to this episode at thatsosecondmillennium.net, share the post for this episode from our Facebook page, or you can use your podcast app's built-in sharing feature.